0: on how to boost your sin IQ. And I was reminded what Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 16.9. He said, I would have you wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning evil. What Paul's saying is you should have at least a master's degree or a doctorate in the things that are good in righteousness and in holiness, but in sin and wickedness and evil... You shouldn't even be ready for K4. I mean, you should uh, be simple just like a, a little baby that knows absolutely nothing. And why is it that people think that you have to experience something wicked and uh, satisfy your curiosity in order to know that something's, whether it's good or bad? You know, the smart person knows that when mom or dad says don't touch that hot stove eye, then You can look at that, and even if you get close, you can feel the heat and recognize that, you know what, I shouldn't put my hand on there. That's what the wise person does. He's wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. Our text for this part two of the message is is the same as we read last week, but let's read it again. Psalm 19, beginning in verse number 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be in church today. Thank you for these that have come. Lord, I know that many of our church families are on vacation this week. Some are still uh, battling health conditions, and we pray a special blessing upon each of them. We pray a blessing upon our live stream audience today, and for anyone who would tune in at a later time, we pray, Father, that the message today will be a help and encouragement, but above all, that it would be used of you to bring glory and honor to you, and it would help all that hear. Pray for these that are here in the auditorium today. Lord, uh, help our attention span to be crisp and clear. Lord, open up our hearts that we wouldn't just hear with our mind, but Lord, we would uh, open up our heart and let the truth of the Word of God sink in. I pray, Father, that the intent of this message to boost our sin IQ Lord, that that intent would be accomplished by your Holy Spirit. If anyone here is not saved, we pray that you'd use this message to help them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We mentioned last week that David, who wrote this psalm, he knew what he was talking about when he spoke about sin. He was, as many of you know, a man after God's own heart. And even the Lord had this to say about him in 1 Kings 15 in verse number 5. He said, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So really one incident that the Lord points out. But if you're familiar with that incident, we know that David's sin was a great sin. And so were the consequences. But they would have been much worse had he not had a high IQ regarding sin and how to deal with it. Mankind typically views sin from the standpoint of, how much can I get away with? Or from the very beginning, the woman that thou gavest me, just like Adam, we're either trying to figure out how we can get away with it. Or we're trying to justify it by casting blame on someone else or, you know, it, you're a sinner. You know what I'm talking about. We can all relate as sinners on how mankind typically views sin. Last week, we looked at the first two points of this message. We saw, number one, understanding the varieties and the, uh, and the consequences of sin. Number two, we saw understanding our own sin we wrapped up the message last week on how that the law is our schoolmaster, and how that the standard that God made for what sin is, is supposed to be used to bring us to Jesus Christ. The law does not make us righteous. The law is not the cure. The law is the x-ray machine, the MRI, the CAT scan, the ultrasound. It's the blood work. It's all the different things that God uses so that we can recognize we feel sick when it comes morally and spiritually. We, we sense and those manifestations, they come out in our life no matter how hard we try to do right, no matter how hard we want to do right. We know that the ugly stuff, the evil stuff in our heart, it just comes out at times in so many different varieties. So we know it, but then God gives us the law so that it's not just a symptom, but it's a standard. We we see. It's clear. I broke God's expectation. I transgressed what He said. He said, I'm supposed to do something, and I didn't do it. That's clear. That's black and white. He said, I'm not supposed to do other things, and guess what? I did it, or I've done it, and we know morally, if we're honest with ourselves, that we have allowed sin into our life. And that law is supposed to help draw us and help us to see our need for the cure. If you don't really see yourself as sick, you're not going to go to the doctor. Nobody likes going to the doctor. It's just not, oh, listen, I'd like to go to the doctor this week. I have so much fun. I enjoy when they stick that stick in my mouth and make me gag. I enjoy it when they squeeze the blood out of my arm when they pump that little ball. Oh, I love it when the needle goes in and I see the blood coming out and I'm saying, "Please save me just a little bit." Oh, and then we, you know, then there's X-rays and MRIs and you know MRI machine. If you've ever been in an MRI machine, it's like they stick you in a 55-gallon barrel and then take a ball bat and they're beating on the barrel. It's a lot of fun. No offense to our MRI techs in the congregation. Nobody says, hey, what am I going to do today? I could could go golfing or I could go to the doctor. (laughs) Who wants to golf? I'm going to the doctor. Nobody wants that. But when we're sick and we realize it, we want to go to the doctor because we have hope that maybe the doctor can help us. Maybe he'll have a prescription or a cure or something that will help us with our sickness. Now, in, human, in in the doctor, the medical profession, we know that that doesn't always pan out like we hoped. But I do want to say this, that in God being the great physician, He's never lost a case. He's never misdiagnosed anyone's sin problem, and He certainly has always had the proper cure. And it all comes down to whether you're willing to take His medicine and accept the cure that He's provided. And so that brings us to number three, and just we're focusing in point number three on understanding the consequences of sin. The Bible teaches us that sin has both temporal as well as eternal consequences. I'll give you an example. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 12 and verse 32. He said, Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither, watch this, in this world, neither in the world to come. If you do me a favor here this morning, do yourself a favor and just forget about this unpardonable sin and what it is. Forget about what that is, because that's a study for another time. But focus on the fact that Jesus talked about forgiveness in this world and in the world to come. That tells us that there is a temporal forgiveness and there is an eternal forgiveness, or rather I should say temporal consequences and eternal consequences. And I'd also like to point out that there's a difference between sin in the life of a lost person and sin in the life of a saved person. If you're here this morning, you're not saved then listen, the way you're living your life and all of your sin problems, you're just doing what comes natural. Now, if you're saved, you have sin problems as well. But the sin in the life of the believer is way more complicated. Now, the eternal consequences are different, as we'll see here in just a moment, but certainly more complicated. Very similar. There's natural and there's universal consequences. They're the same for lost and the saved. You'll see that in just a moment. But that's where the similarities end. And so let's talk first about about the universal consequences of sin. You've seen it every time that you went to a funeral home. The universal consequences of sin are Romans 6.23, where the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death. Death is our enemy. I hate death. I hate the fact that I can't call up or go visit my mother or my father. I hate that there are people who, I mean, just still, years and years later, I look out at this congregation, and I just think they're supposed to be here. They ought to be here. They're part of our church family. And they're gone, and they're in heaven. And every funeral that I've done, I look at that body, and I look at what used to be someone that we fellowshiped with, and that we had a great time, we loved being around, and we look at that and we just think that's just, that's our enemy. We hate that. We don't like that. But it's not the way that God intended it to be. That is the universal consequence of sin. All of humanity, I don't care how good you are, I don't care how well you take care of your health, ultimately and eventually, every single one of us, except for anyone who's alive when the trumpet sounds, and folks, the trumpet's going to sound, I am more and more aware that the, the generation and the culture that we live in is rapidly getting more and more like Sodom. It's getting more and more like the days of Noah, where the thoughts and the imaginations of man's heart are only evil continually, our culture has become sexually perverse. I mean, our our culture is people living lives without God at the center, just living life for self and sin, and there's no standard of righteousness. That is what our culture is becoming, and it is getting worse and worse. Listen, you know, our culture is getting getting worse at the same rate as zucchinis grow in my garden. Literally, I mean, you go and you look at it and if you can look at it for five minutes and see, well, it's not growing, but you come back five hours later and it's almost too big to pick. It's crazy. And you know what? That's the way our culture is declining in 2022. I'm not being a downer. I just, we have to be honest with it. I don't like it. I hate it for our children. I hate it for our future. I look and say, what's the hope of America? Listen, I don't. the only hope for America is Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is, that's the only hope America has ever had. It's just that in our culture, there used to be more of Jesus Christ in it than there is today. And it breaks my heart. But it also gives me hope. It also causes me to do what God told me to do, and that is, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Thank God we're not of this world. We're not looking for a utopia here on this earth. We're looking for God to take us out of this evil, wicked world, praise the Lord. So, yeah, it's bad news, but for the believer, there's some good news attached to that. Listen, death is not merely physical. The universal result is not just the physical, it's also the spiritual Do you know the Lord told Adam, he said, don't eat of that fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, for the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, God gives us the narrative. Adam didn't take a bite and drop dead. No, he he, he continued to live physically, and he started to experience the effects of that sin. At that moment, on the inside, death started working in him. He started the dying process. His conscience was now as God knowing good and evil. He recognized that he was naked. He felt guilty. He felt like he wanted to hide from God. He was no longer looking forward to God showing up in the garden in the cool of the day and having some fellowship with Him. He wasn't looking forward to that. He was dreading it. And that sounds like the way that Too often, we live our life today even as believers. Death is not just physical. Adam died physically later on, but the moment that he ate of that fruit, he died spiritually. For the wages of sin is death. Listen, we commit the sin. It's who we are. It's what we've done. And listen, just like when you go and you put in 40 hours for your employer, you get your paycheck a little bit later. You don't get your paycheck for every hour you work. You work a set amount of time, whether you get paid weekly or monthly or get an annual salary. It doesn't really matter. Payday is coming someday. And the same goes for the universal consequences of our sin. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's what the wise person, the person with the high IQ about sin. He recognizes that, hey, it's not just about what I want to do today. It's about what the consequences are throughout all eternity. The wise person prepares for the future. The wise person doesn't waste their life today at the expense of eternity. He is willing to sacrifice a little bit of pleasure in the here and the now so that we can enjoy the glory that God has for us in the there and the then. All eternity compared to just a few years on this earth, which the Bible says are, they're just gonna pass like a vapor. They're gone. Some of you older saints, you can, you can relate to that. It's like you look back at your life. Younger people think, oh, I'm never gonna get to graduation. Oh, I'm never gonna get married. Oh, I'm never gonna get that promotion. I'm never gonna, all these things that were trying to achieve the goals in our life, and we think they're never going to happen. And then we get a little bit older. Time starts going so fast, and we think, what happened? It just seemed like that happened ten years ago. But it was no time. Time just starts going so fast. The universal consequences of sin are death. Paul referred to this in Romans 7 as the law of sin and death. And then you have the natural consequences. The Bible says in Galatians 6, verse number 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he goes on to say that they that sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. This is a natural consequence of sin that applies to both the saved people and the lost people. You're not going to get away with your sin. It's just quite that simple. You may be getting away with it or thinking you're getting away with it today, but every sin that you commit, every decision, every choice that is not according to the righteousness of the Word of God, it's going to come back to haunt you. You're going to reap the effects of it in a negative and in a suffering kind of way. Eventually, it's going to reap corruption in your life. You cannot, there is no way. Don't be deceived in thinking that you're the exception to the rule. It just hasn't happened for you yet. Today's lust leads to tomorrow's adultery and that all leads to divorce. Today's frustration is tomorrow's road rage and then that leads to jail, to lawsuits. Today's deception leads to tomorrow's Outright lies, the white lies lead to black lies, and it becomes worse and worse, and that causes broken relationships, and who knows what other consequences. Shame and reproach and mistrust, covetousness, leads to stealing. Stealing leads to getting fired from your job. Shame, maybe even being put in jail. I've known good people that were faithful to church, that ended up spending time in prison because they were just skimming a little bit off the top at at work. Maybe some fun that they had control over and they were just kind of hiding little things here and there and they got away with it for 10, 15, 20 years, but eventually they got caught. And oh, what shame. Where did it start? It started out with just a little bit of deception here, a little bit more, and then you stretch it just a little bit further. Hey, laziness leads to dependency. Dependency leads to loss of liberty and bondage. You know, that's what's going on in America today. You know, I don't don't like the policy and the decisions that our current president is making. There's not a doubt in my mind, and if you're honest, I think we all know that if the previous president was president tomorrow, then probably by the end of the week, we'd be paying under $3 a gallon for gas. Why? Because he, he's a business. He, he knows how to fix it. He knows how to take care of the American public. Not the agendas or the, you know, the pressures from all these different, uh, agendas and the global pressure and all of that. He's not gonna, he's gonna worry about us. And that's not a, a political endorsement. That's just the fact that, hey, things were different. Facts don't lie. And I, I have no doubt about it that, what we're dealing with, with inflation and gas prices and, uh, you know, all the illegal immigrants coming in that are causing a strain on our economy and our justice system and so forth, it's fixable. But people don't want to fix it. That's not the problem, though. The problem is not the president, it's the people. Too many people are okay with that. You know what? Too many people say, hey, send me my check. I'm okay with that. I'm sure, and and I'm not saying that we should feel guilty by cashing our, what what do they call the, the economic stimulus checks? I didn't feel guilty about it. But you know what? I thought it was dumb. You know how many people got those checks that didn't deserve them? a lot. It could have worked. It could have, we could have got through that without just chipping away and making the public more and more dependent upon the government. And so people, they, they, their laziness gives way to dependency. And those, those are the kind of things that if we don't recover as a culture, the next step is I think we're already at the next step, and that's socialism. We've just labeled it a little bit differently. But the next step is just outright unashamed socialism. There are natural consequences, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. Whatever your category is, we've got to understand that each and every one of us need to be personally responsible for the consequences of the choices that we make. Natural consequences are incremental. They're accumulative. They don't happen overnight. It's just a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. Do you know that you can get mercury poisoning from ingesting too many fish? Now, I like to eat fish. I, I don't like to eat at every meal, but I know there are some cultures that they eat fish literally every meal every day. And you know, wherever it comes from, well, I don't know if it comes from the coal plants or if it just comes naturally from the environment. I don't, I don't necessarily trust the scientists to be accurate about that, but we do know for a fact that, uh, some fish are high in mercury content. And if you eat it every day, then you're taking in more mercury than your body can process. And you know what happens? You start ingesting that. And, and here's what, here, here's what they say can happen if you get too much mercury. It'll cause bloody diarrhea. That doesn't sound good. Absorbed mercury can spread to other organ systems, resulting in mental changes, including mood swings, memory loss, or renal damage. Muscle weakness may also occur. You know what that's a perfect description of? Of the, the natural consequences of the effect of sin in our life. We partake in it. It tasted good. No problem. I feel fine afterward. But then we just continue and we continue, and the effects of sin are both incremental and they are accumulative until eventually it starts affecting our spirit, our moods. It starts affecting everything around us. We start to lose our mind. It changes us. You know what? Sin will change your personality. Sin will change how you interact with other people. Sin will change. You get sin in your life, and guess what? The Bible reading it becomes a drudgery. Prayer life becomes a drudgery. I mean, coming to church, it's like, well, I better go to church. You know, if you got sin in your life, then the things that God intends to be a joy are not going to be a joy, they're going to be a burden. It's cumulative. Solomon said in Song of Solomon 2.15, he said, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. It's not the big foxes that come in and spoil the fruit in your life. It's the little foxes that can get to that fruit and take away your blessings and your joy and all of the good things that the Lord has in store for us. Now, for those of you that are not saved, I'd like to just take a moment here and talk about the eternal consequences of sin. And listen, these are just, uh, this boosts your IQ. I'm just giving you some highlights. There are tons of verses that we could demonstrate and show these truths, but I'm just going to give you the basics. I'm going to keep it simple. There are eternal consequences for those of you that do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I say this, I'm going to read some verses out of the Bible. This is not what I'm saying, not my opinion. This is God's holy word. In Revelation 20 and verse number 15, God tells us that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You get your name written in the book of life by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can talk about, well, I was a member of this church, and I did this, and I did that. God's not going to care at that day when you stand before Him. He's just simply going to open up the book, and if your name's not written in there, I don't even think you're going to get an opportunity to talk to St. Peter. I'm sure that you're not. God's going to say, if you're not written in the book of life, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's an eternal consequence, and whether you believe it or not, I believe it to be true. And you know what, if you don't believe it, then I just want to say you're, you're staking a lot on your belief. I sure hope that you have something of substance to, to back up why you believe that way. How about Matthew 16 in verse number 26, where Jesus says, "...for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul?" You may live a life that's just exactly like you wanted it to be. You may accomplish all of your goals. Every way that life may just go totally your way. But when it's all, when you get to the end of your life, if you lose your soul, what's it going to advantage you? What's going to be the benefit? Oh, he lived a perfect life. He got everything that he wanted. His whole life went his way. Let's write that on your tombstone while you spend the rest of your life in eternity. Well, preacher, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus and all of that. And I wonder how many people will lose their own soul, not because they said, no, God, I'm not interested. They just said, no, I'm not interested yet. Give me some time to sow my wild oats, to live my life the way that I want to live. And when I'm finished with that, then then I'll give the rest to you. And uh, folks, 99% of the time, that day never comes. Hell is filled. The lake of fire will be filled with people that just put off God and would not face the eternal consequences of sin. And then I want to talk about the consequences of sin for the saved. I've already mentioned to you that it's more complicated for the saved person. And if you're not saved and you think that getting saved is just going to make your life perfect and wonderful, and if that's what your intention is, and getting saved, and I'm just going to tell you right up front, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Getting saved is not anything like what too many people think that, oh, well, I'll get saved, and then I'm on my way to heaven, and I can continue committing whatever sins that I want, living however I want. That's not true salvation at all. Salvation is something that takes place in the heart. It's not a canned prayer that we pray. It's not an affiliation with any religion or any church. It has nothing to do with that. Salvation is a genuine, real thing that takes place in the heart. Sin is infinitely more complicated for the believer. Jesus did not die on the cross merely to rescue us from the consequences of sin. That would be a total narcissistic approach to God. God, You're there for me, and this is all about me. This is has nothing to do with You. Just, you know, let me do whatever I want, but just take away the consequences from me. What a reproach to the cross of Jesus Christ. God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, not just for the penalty, but because of sin itself. You see, God, in His infinite mercy and grace and wisdom, He planned for Jesus to die on the cross, and he planned it before Adam ever sinned in the garden. The Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. It was in God's infinite plan. He knew what Adam would do, but he still was merciful enough to give Adam the free choice to make that decision himself. And so God says, you know what, somebody's got to fix this mess that Adam created Somebody's got to restore what Adam lost, and so in when the fullness of time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, made under the law so that Jesus could live a sinless life on this earth and yet still go to the cross and die. The wages of sin is death. You say, how then, if Jesus was sinless, how could He die on the cross of Calvary? Well, that's a great question, and I've got an even greater answer. The answer is this, when Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, He bore all of our sins in His body on the tree. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He could die physically because He took upon Him the sins of the entire human race, past, present, and future, Oh, what a horrible thing he must have been feeling there on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did he go through that suffering and that torment? He did it for you. He did it for you. That little thing, that little sin in your life that you indulge yourself with and you say, oh, that's no big deal. This makes me happy. Jesus did it for you. He did it for that. That horrible sin that you've got in your past, that skeleton in your closet, he did it for you that little time, young people, where you you knew what your parents told you to do and you said, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to lie. I'm going to deceive. I'm going to sneak around. Jesus did it for you, for those sins, for all of sins. It doesn't matter what they are. Jesus died for our sins. There are consequences for those that are saved. How, How about the loss of fellowship? The Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse number 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You know, I, I want to point out to this, that sin in the life of a believer is not going to land you in the lake of fire. That's a consolation. You are sealed unto the day of redemption. You're secure. And that's a great promise. But that doesn't mean that grieving the Holy Spirit of God is a light thing. He lives inside of you as a believer. And when He's grieved, you're grieved. I I wonder, I wonder how much... Now listen, please, hear my preface. I'm not saying this is you or anybody that you know, but I wonder how many people who suffer from depression that are saved, I wonder how much of it might be the fact that they're just living a sinful worldly life and grieving the Holy Spirit, and they could get that peace back. They could get that back if they just simply quit being stubborn and do what they know is right and quit letting the devil torment their conscience. Loss of fellowship. How about loss of joy and peace? How about loss of rewards? Listen, boys and girls, can you imagine those of you that came up here and you got your Master Club awards and uh, you had all of these badges on your vest? I mean, I I love to see these Master Club vests that just got, I mean, front and back. They got patches and they got ribbons and all of these things. Can you imagine if somebody came up behind you and grabbed that vest by the back and just ripped it off of you and took it and ripped it up and threw it in the fire pit and said, how do you like them apples? You'd say, I don't like them apples. Those are my rewards. I worked hard for those. Those are things that I wear proudly because God helped me do this. I did these in order to receive these awards. You wouldn't like it if that happened. But I got news for you. If you do not deal with sin in your life and you just continually allow sin in your life at the judgment seat of Christ, your whole life is going to pass through a fire and all those rewards are just going to be burnt up and lost. That's a consequence to the saved people that the lost people don't even have to worry about. How about loss of testimony? You say, what's the big deal about testimony? to a believer. It's huge. It ought to be huge. Paul said, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Hey, the, the Christian world is full of hypocrites. I mean, pulpits are full of hypocrites, preachers that preach one thing behind the pulpit and live something totally different in their life. It's a reproach. Do you know that when David sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah, the first thing that Nathan the prophet said to him, he said, Thou art the man. And he said, You have given a great cause of reproach to the enemies of God. You have hurt God's cause. I wonder how many people would be saved instead of on their way to hell if Christians would just live righteously and quit living the life of a hypocrite. I'm not saying that Christians are perfect Listen, I, I'm not talking about I made a mistake or I committed a sin. I'm talking about allowing it and making it part of your lifestyle and not getting it right with the Lord. Listen, you follow me around close enough. You know, if, if you knew enough about me, you'd say that, hey, that preacher's a hypocrite. He just said something that he's preached that I shouldn't say. That's going to happen. I, I still got that old me in me. But when the Holy Spirit reveals it and we recognize it, we're supposed to get back on track and get right and keep our body under subjection. Listen, if you name the name of Christ, God says we're supposed to depart from iniquity. I remember when I worked out there in the, the workforce before I went into full-time ministry. And I just I, I couldn't stand it when there would be co-workers that. We'd be sitting around in the break room and these were people who were professing Christians. I mean, they'd tell people where they go to church and when I talked to them, we'd have we we would talk about stuff that they'd get real religious. They'd ask me Bible questions. I had one that he'd look at me and he'd say, "Oh, Randy," he said, "I I would give my life for Jesus. I just love him so much." And then you get in the break room every Monday morning. And they talk about their exploits on Saturday night. They talk about all that garbage. And I'm sitting there and it's like you you say, you're not supposed to be angry if you're a Christian. Oh, I'm sitting there and I'm just fuming. And finally, I told one of them, I said, I wish you'd quit saying that you have anything to do with Jesus Christ. You're hurting our cause. By the way, that's real. That's the real problem in America today. It's a Christian nation. It's a reason that church attendance is dropping, because there's just a lack of real Christianity. I can't fix the church across the street. I can't fix what's going on in the world, but I can certainly go look in the mirror and say, God, help me. Help me. I don't want the consequences of losing my testimony and the effectiveness of trying to help people come to Jesus Christ. How about the loss of blessings? Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. Hey, are you getting your prayers answered? Maybe it's because... You got things in your life that you just, you know it's not right, but you just make light of it. Hey, there's going to come a time where you need an answered prayer. Chastisement. You know, God doesn't chase, it. The, the world, I had buddies in high school that they'd get away with stuff. It didn't seem to bother them. It seemed like everything that I did, things, I, it seemed like I'd suffer for it. Not everything. God was, God put up with a lot, but there was quite a few times that I would look at that and go, God just pulled me behind the woodshed and wore me out. And I knew it. Had times where a car wreck, a a motorcycle wreck, and just all kinds of different things that it's like, man, I, I know God. I know. And he would make it clear in my mind why he did it. He, 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 did, he wasn't vague about it. Hebrews 12, verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I've never enjoyed one of God's whoopings but I wouldn't trade it for the world. God used chastisement in my life so that I'd quit going down that path of sin and destruction, and He used it to bring me back. And I cannot thank Him enough. Was it pleasant? No. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Because I'm glad that God loves me. I wonder, I wonder about people who say that they know the Lord. And they just continue to live in violation of his word. Living that way and they seem happy with it. They seem fine. No big deal. And it seems like there's never chastisement that comes in their life. I I question, I wonder about that. I, I would have to say I would rather have God's whoopings and know that he loves me than to continue in sin and nothing happen and feel like that, well, I guess God doesn't mind. Because one of these days, we're going to stand before him, or we're going to find out that he did mind. How about temporal condemnation, sickness, and death? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'm going to go real, real quickly here, because I'm taking a little more time than I wanted to. But I'm going to present a couple things here that we don't hear much of anymore, but they're still Bible truth. Let me preface it with this. There are charismatics out there that if you get sick, they're going to tell you that you're not right with God. They're going to tell you if you catch COVID, then you just didn't have enough faith. That's a bunch of hogwash. Paul had physical problems and infirmities, and he was as right with God as any of us have ever been. So that's not the case, and that's not for anyone else to say. And it's not for you to say when somebody, some tragedy happens in someone's life, oh, I know why that happened to them. That's none of your business. That's between them and their Heavenly Father. He's the one that does the chastisement. But there is a truth here. First John 5, verse number 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. For them that sin not unto death, there is a sin unto death. I do not say. He shall pray for it. You say, what is that sin unto death? Well, doctrinally, I think it's talking about something that's relative to the tribulation period. But practically and inspirationally, just as a practical word to us, I believe with all of my heart that if a born-again Christian with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, that we can commit a sin, that the consequences means God says, I'm taking you out of here. They that live after the flesh shall die, Romans 8 says. If you defile the temple of God, him will God destroy. Listen, you're forcing, you talk about the complication of a sin life. You've got Jesus Christ living inside of you. Everything that you do, you're subjecting him to it. I mean, can you imagine it? Can you imagine a two saved, a saved man and a saved woman committing adultery? Who would want to commit adultery and say, Jesus, come on in. Come on into the hotel room and stand here and watch. That's preposterous. I mean, that's just vile to even think of that. Hey, guess what? He's inside. What I'm trying to say is that the consequences of sin in the life of a believer is way more complicated than you think. And I'm just giving you Bible truth. This is not the opinion of some raving lunatic preacher. First Corinthians 11, verse number 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. King James Bible truth right there, brothers and sisters. The consequences of sin are numerous. But rest assured, there are consequences for our sin. Natural, universal, eternal, and so forth. Sin is a horrible thing, brothers and sisters. Number four, and I promise I'll be quick here. If you're going to have a high sin IQ, really this is what all that I've said so far, it comes down to this point right here, and that is understanding the solution to sin. I thank God that the Word of God is just filled with Bible truths that give us the solution to our sin problem. David said this in Psalm 51, verse number 4. Listen to what David said. He said, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David had hurt a lot of people. He had hurt Uriah. He had hurt Uriah's family. I mean, he had hurt his testimony, and his children suffered immensely. I mean, he had to watch. He had to watch all of the suffering of his sons and his daughter as a result of his sin. I can't imagine how he had to relive The guilt of that over and over and over for the rest of his life. God told him that wars from your own house are not going to leave you. And how every time he had that family conflict and that family problem, how he was reminded, I know why this is happening. But he didn't say it wasn't my fault. He didn't say that This was had anything to do with man. He said, against thee and thee only have I done this evil, that thou, God, mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. The solution to sin starts with an honest confession. Or as we say today, own it. Own it. You'll never get right until you get real. And boy, are we not living in a generation that's fake today. This is the fake book. I mean, Facebook generation. I mean, you can market yourself. You can take a selfie. And I mean, you can put on the makeup and you can get the angle of the camera just right and the background just right. And I mean, you can market yourself to the whole world and they'll think you're a celebrity. But it's fake. I mean, you can look at these celebrities that, oh, they look gorgeous. They look handsome. Take off the makeup. Change the camera angle. See what they look like when they wake up in the morning and it's the same as you and I. Ugh. You're never going to get right until you get real. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess is an important important word. Confess means the declaration of something that is true. You cannot have a false confession. I know people use that, but when somebody comes and admits to a crime that they committed and they say that was a false confession, no it wasn't. That's a contradiction of terms. That was a false profession. They said they did something that they didn't do. A confession is the declaration of something that is true. It's getting real before God. God, I confess that this is what I've done, and this is what I am. It's transparency. You know, the the Roman Catholic Church has this man-made doctrine called the confessional booth. And it is man-made. It's not in the Bible. And they go and they confess their sins to a human priest... And listen, I had Catholic friends and I've, I've known a lot of them. I'm sure that there are some of them that are transparent with their priest. But the majority of them, they come in before the priest and they confess to the misdemeanors and they deny, they just leave out the felonies. The really deep, dark, embarrassing, shameful stuff, they don't mention that to a human being. But you know what? We don't go to God through a human priest. We have our high priest, Jesus Christ. And we, he's our mediator. We can go direct to God and, hey, I got news for you. Listen, that Catholic priest doesn't know you. You have to tell him what he needs to know about you. But God, he knows you. Everything about you. And he's wanting you to come clean with him. He knows what you are. He knows what you've done. But He's waiting for us to tell Him so that we fully acknowledge and take ownership over what we are. So it starts with a real confession. But the solution to sin is more than just a guilty plea. The law requires a payment. And the judge is also the lawgiver. He cannot be righteous and fair and make an exception for you. Wouldn't you agree if you just said, Lord, I did it. I plead guilty. Let me off the hook. If he's going to be fair and just, he's got to let everybody off the hook, right? I guarantee you, there's probably some people in your life that have done some things to you. Hey, how about the, how about the kid in Uvalde, Texas? How would you like it if you're one of those parents whose child was slaughtered and I can't remember his his name, evades me. If he's standing before the judge, if he lived, and he said, I'm guilty, I did it, I'm sorry. And the judge says, "Oh, I'm glad you're sorry. You're free to go. How are you going to feel about that, mom and dad? You're not going to feel very good about that judge, are you? The judge, the creator of this universe, is just and fair and righteous and good, He has a holy law and standard. We violated it. The wages of sin is death. There are consequences. There are results. The law says there has to be a payment made. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. Aren't you glad that God wears many hats? Not only is He judge... Not only is he lawgiver, but he's also a loving heavenly father that wants to rescue his wayward children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, under the Old Testament law, God established there had to be a blood sacrifice in order to atone for the sins that were committed. That sacrifice, that atonement was not worthy of completely taking away sin. It wasn't adequate. It wasn't perfect. It was temporary, if you will. But they were a picture. Those sacrifices were a picture of the Lamb of God that was to come and die on the cross of Calvary. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Hey, aren't we talking about God's solution to our sin problem? It's the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. So, to keep it simple, the solution to sin for both the saved and the lost is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're lost, it'll wash away your sins and it'll make peace with God. If you're saved, according to 1 John chapter number 1, it will cleanse you and it will restore your fellowship, your relationship with him. In conclusion, is sin really that big of a deal? It doesn't seem like it's very big a big deal to people today, Christian or unbeliever just doesn't seem like people take it that serious it's a pleasure it's an amusement it's a lifestyle it's something that i mean this whole last month it's pride we're proud of all of this are you serious what what is there to be proud of the bible says it's an abomination romans 1 says it's unseemly romans 1 says that god gives them over to vile affections what what is there to be proud of you say you're being hateful and judgmental now, I'd like to see those people get saved. But I'm not going to deny that their problem is a sin problem. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a choice. It's sin. I don't apologize for that because that's God's standard. Hey, listen, I'm here to help. The only thing that's going to help is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is not going to be applied to sin that someone's proud of has to be acknowledged, it has to be confessed. I know I've told this story before, but I can't think of a story that really pictures this any better. I was in fourth or fifth grade, and we lived, actually we lived just down the road from where Mitch Service was born. He's going to be preaching here tonight. And uh, Mitch Service lived right on the uh, the, the city um the city boundary, where the city limit was, and we lived about a 100 yards down outside of the city limits, and kind of country, but very close to town, and, you know, we didn't have problems with snakes, you know, you'd see a little water snake, a garter snake here and there, because we had a canal over nearby, but as far as anything dangerous or deadly, they just weren't around, you didn't see them, and we ran all over, we we, we went up and down the, the, the ditch all the time, out in the fields, and you just didn't see anything, dangerous. And so one day there was a, a little snake that was crawling around there in the neighbor's driveway right across the street. And me and a couple of the neighbor kids, we saw it. And we, I looked at it and I didn't see any rattles. And I'd learned in school that the bull snake and the rattlesnake, they look similar. But obviously the difference is the bull snake doesn't have rattles. And so I thought, hey, look, there's no rattles. It's a bull snake. And so we all got sticks and so we're kind of poking at it and playing at it and watching it coil up and strike at the stick and, you know, we're just, you know, it would strike and we'd get back and we're really amused and having, you know, a lot of fun with playing around with this snake, this bull snake. And, and my dad comes out and he sees us. He said, what are you boys doing? And I said, we're playing with this bull snake. And he said, step back and let me come over there. He came across the street. And he said, boys, that's a rattlesnake. It's a baby rattler. We're, we're like, I mean, I could just feel the color coming down, just like a, a thermometer, just the, the, the color just coming down. It, and my eyes got big. I said, dad, there's no rattles on it. Dad said, it's a rattlesnake. And I questioned, does dad know what he's talking about? He said, go get the shovel. Went and got the shovel and he chopped the head off. And he said, looky here, son. He said, You don't tell you tell it by the shape of the head. And he opened up that the mouth of that and you could see those little rattlesnake fangs. After that, he chopped the head off. He took the tail and he said, Feel underneath the skin of that tail. And you could sure enough feel the rattles right underneath the skin of that western diamondback rattlesnake. If you know anything about rattlesnakes, you know that the baby ones are actually more harmful. They can actually inject more poison than the big ones do. I thought, wow, here I am playing around with something that's deadly, finding amusement. And you know as well as I do, if Dad hadn't have come out, you know what us boys would have done. We would have got tired at poking a stick at it, and someone would have said, hey, somebody pick it up, I dare you. You know, it would have progressed. You know, this is fun. This is no longer any more fun. Let's do something more until it's fun again. That's exactly what would have happened. But guess what? My father saved me. My father came to the rescue. He wasn't trying to ruin my fun. He's trying to save me from a lot of pain and suffering and maybe even death. I'm so thankful that my daddy, he rescued me. Ladies and gentlemen, sin is dangerous and deadly. If you find an amusement and pleasure in it, your Heavenly Father wants to rescue you from your sin problem, and He has provided everything that you need. I thank God that God intervened in my life. I thank God for the consequences of my sin. I would have never gotten right if I hadn't have recognized the consequences and if I would have never gotten real with God. I knew that sin was wrong. But as long as sin wasn't hurting me, I was just fine with it. I was pretty much in love with the world until I started finding out that the world wasn't in love with me. And I knew that it was wrong, and I knew that I was hurting myself. But until I realized that my sin was hurting the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, I didn't recognize it for what it was. But I thank, I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit showed me. So, how's your sin IQ? Do you understand what sin is? Do you understand who you are? Do you recognize the consequences? And do you accept God's solution? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you.